Lord our God, may we never get a small view of who you are. Because that was the lesson you were trying to teach your people in the Old Testament, that you are not a small God, that you are an awesome, majestic God. God is to be feared, whose name is to be lifted up. One who we tremble before when we come. And yet, the one who is approachable. Thank you for who you are. You are not like us. And so, Lord, as we open your word, the word that you've given to us, the word from your very mind, may we listen to your word. May we learn the lessons you are to teach us. And may we go and be obedient to you, we pray. Thank you, God. Teach us now, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we're back in the book of Hebrews. Yes. And um, it's been a bit of a gap since um, we went on a holiday. So we're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. And I hope you managed to get through the bit of homework that I gave you in the week. But um, it would just give, just fill in the colors a little bit on what the tabernacle looked like, the furniture in the tabernacle and everything that went with that. And so we're going to be doing a little bit of revision today. Um, but let's first read this text for this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 to 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Before we get to the passage, just a bit of history. In 1816, uh, a Frenchman by the name of Joseph Nesafor Nipsha, I think that's how you say it. Thank you, John. He's a photographic expert. He, he took a picture um, using this camera that he built and... 
he had a piece of paper coated with silver chloride and the light reacted to, uh, sorry, the chloride reacted to the light um, landing on the piece of paper. And what he hadn't worked out yet was how to remove the silver chloride from the piece of paper once the photo had been taken. And so eventually this piece of paper was darkened by the very light needed to view it. And the first cameras were very um, ancient affairs, just a box that you kind of opened, allowed light in and closed. And then that developed later into a giant of a camera, and um, it became a bit of a mission. It took days to set up anywhere, and imagine if we did have to do that today. We're going to call a group photo, and then you take days to build everything. And then that developed later into... Um, a camera that they could, that was smaller, that they could put on a tripod, and then they had this fantastic stuff called flash powder. And they, you see the picture of the guy under the cover, and then he's got the flash powder, and, he, and he's kind of black. And, got the photo, yeah. Think how things have changed today. You got your cell phone, some of you got one lens on there, some of you got five. It's like a competition today who can get most lenses on one camera? that's the most expensive one. I must have it. But think what that camera can do. You can take really good movies with that camera now. Just from that little gadget. And that's not all. Satellites up in space, and you'll see some of the images used now in the Ukraine, all right? Such clear, clear photos taken from 25Ks up in space. And those cameras can, can focus down on a golf ball 25 kilometers away in space, and they can focus on the dimples of the golf ball. So that's how technology has progressed, right? And so the question is, or the statement rather, is what's better? Why go back to the old stuff when there's so much better available? That's the major theme of what we're looking at when it comes to worship of God in the Old Testament. Because the writer to the Hebrews has, when we've looked at that last time we were around this passage, he's looked at the old covenant and compared it to the new covenant. And he said, the new covenant is so much better. It's a superior covenant to what you had. Why, Jews, would you go back to that? Because that was the problem in the, in the church. They wanted to go back to an old system. And now he focuses specifically on worship. Old Testamental Levitical worship that these Jews knew really well, that happened in the Old Testament, and he's saying to them, let's compare this to New Testament worship through Christ. Which is the better one? Be reminded, Jews, don't go back to the old. And it's kind of a two-part series um, today, so I'm doing the Old Testament worship, the Levitical worship, and next time we're getting to the more exciting stuff, the New Testament and the worship through Christ. But we need to understand the Old Testament Levitical worship so that we see what the limitations were so that it makes the new even better. You get that? So we're going to go into that because Scripture says we must. It's the next passage in front of us. And so what the writer to the Hebrew does is here, he condenses 50 Old Testament chapters into five verses. He summarizes all these regulations that went around worshiping the tabernacle into five core verses. You see, the tabernacle was the center of worship to all Jews. Because not everyone could travel to Jerusalem and be in the temple, but every Jewish community had its tabernacle. 
And so all Jews could go and worship at the tabernacle. And this tabernacle moved around with God's people wherever they moved. And so just after the Exodus, when the people were in the desert, God gave them the first instructions on how to build the tabernacle so that God would be with them. They had a place that God could be with them. Because we are physical creatures. We need physical evidence. We need physical things around us. And so, why is this description of the furniture and the high priest's actions on the Day of Atonement given, as we've looked at them? Well, it's to make a point. And if you look at verses 8 to 9 in the text, there's the crunch of what we're on about this morning. I'm going to just read those. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food, drinks, washings, regulations, until the time of Reformation. There's the core part of our passage this morning. You see, the point he makes there is, and through this passage this morning, is that the Levitical system did not provide any direct access into God's presence. Just think about what I've just said. The Levitical system, as they had it in the Old Testament, did not provide any direct access for the people into God's presence. Rather, it kept them away. Strange statement. Why did it keep them away? Well, you see, through all those regulations to do with tabernacle worship, and through the high priest only being allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, it taught the people how inaccessible God was. Why? Because He is holy. We've been singing about that all morning. The lesson to the Old Testament people was, you can't just come to God any old way. He is a holy and an awesome God. And you need to come before Him His way. It was a holiness lesson. However, as he points out in verses 8 and 9, what the Holy Spirit was teaching through this picture of the tabernacle, because the word illustration, as used in the Greek, parabole, means parable. What is a parable? It's a picture with a story that's got a lesson in it. And this picture points to a greater high priest who would come, the Christos, the Christ, who would one day come and bring direct access into God's presence. The one who would bring a nearness to God. It pointed to a better system of worship. The heavenly tabernacle, as verse 11 reads, which we haven't read this morning. And this heavenly tabernacle wasn't made with human hands, wasn't erected like a tent, but God made it. So let's look at this tabernacle. We need to understand clearly because... Um, Unless you're Jewish here and you've studied this, um, it's kind of vague information. And so let's go and look at what he describes to us. And again, we can only do it in some detail. So as we approached, and I've got my pointer here, so I hope it works. Red. So as they approached the, um, as they approached worship, um, when they came to worship the Lord, people would come in from this side over here, and they would enter the yard or the covered outer courtyard here where there was a 
place for sacrificing animals and there was a large basin for the ceremonial washings. People didn't actually go into this area at all, into the actual tabernacle. The furthest they got was here. Only the priests went in there. Only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year. So the people didn't actually get into the tabernacle at all. They remained out here, distance from God. So as we look into, as we look at this whole setup, when the, when the priest had finished his ceremonial washings over here, he would then enter through this first entrance where a curtain hung over, and that was called the first veil. He'd walk through this area into, into this inner sanctum over here called the holy place. And if you did, did your homework, that's chapters 25 and 26 in Exodus you would have read about. And as a priest came in, there's various bits of furniture in this room. And we're going to go through each of them in a little bit of detail. First one on his left as he walked in was the seven-branched golden lampstand. It was about five to six feet tall, um, about my height, nearly. Um, and it was made from pure gold. And it was in the shape of seven branches, a main branch and then six branches. And they were pointed into the main branch. And the tips of these branches had what looked like, they were shaped like almond blossoms and they were hollow. And holy oil, olive oil was burnt there continuously. That lamp was never allowed to go out. And this lamp gave the light to the priests who served in the, inside their tent, inside the tabernacle. But there was symbolism to this whole lampstand or the menorah. And it symbolized God's enlightenment, the wisdom of God, and man's wisdom pointing um, to God and coming from God. And so you've got God's wisdom right in the middle, the, the branch, and then six branches of human wisdom which comes from God and which God casts his light on. So that was one of the symbolisms of this menorah. There was more symbolism here to the Jew. It also represented the creation. Seven days of creation. Six, on the seventh day God rested. Six days of creation and the Sabbath in the middle. There's more to it. We haven't got time today. And then in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. And I just want to read that by the way. Revelation 1 verse 12. We again have reference to the golden lampstands. And I'm sure you know what I'm going to read now. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. Listen to this, a holy God. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. A holy, awesome God in the midst of the churches. See the picture? It's great. As the priest walked in, the, the menorah is on his left. On the right-hand side, there was the gold overlaid table. And on this table 
were 12 sacred loaves of bread called the showbread or the bread of the presence. And it represented the 12 tribes of Israel who God provided for bread. God provided for all 12 tribes and they were represented as those loaves stood on the table. And this week was the, the, the bread was changed weekly and so the priests could then eat this week old bread um, and they could participate of it this leavened bread, and so they ate the bread, and it was an early symbol of New Testament communion. See where this all comes from. It doesn't just happen. They drank wine before the Lord too as part of what they did. And this bread was served up, uh, it was on a golden platter, and the flagon was also of gold that the wine was kept in. So we move from these two objects to our left and right, and now in front of us, if you're inside the tabernacle with a priest, you see this woven curtain separating the, the holy place from the most holy place. And just in front of the woven curtain is the golden altar of incense made of gold. And the priest used to, the, the high priest used to come in and burn incense every morning at twilight and in the evening. And he used to come and burn this incense on the altar of incense. And this represented the prayers of God's people going up to God. So the high priest would do that in the morning and in the evening on this golden incense altar. But once a year, he would offer up things in a slightly different way. He would bring blood from the offerings and put them on the horns of this golden incense altar because it had four little horns on it. And that happened once a year. And at that time, then the woven curtain would be open for him to go through. And so this altar of incense became one with the, the, with the uh, woven curtain. It separated the two, but at that stage, the altar of incense went into the next room, in a sense, because he was using it in that function. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says that altar of incense was in the Holy of Holies. It was in its function once a, day, once a year on the Day of Atonement, it was being used that way. And so he pictures it that way, even though physically it is in front of the curtain. All right, I hope that was not too confusing. And then once a year, we get into the most holy place with a high priest. Remember what they did to him? They tied a rope around his foot so that in case he died inside there and God struck him dead, they'd be able to draw him out. Okay, so there's the high priest going in. And what does he see in front of him? He sees in front of him the Ark of the Covenant. It was made from special acacia wood covered in gold. This was the same Ark that Moses had the tablets of stone put in, and they carried it around with them when they traveled through the wilderness. This was the same Ark of the Covenant that got put inside the um, tabernacle. Now I'm sure um, when they had other tabernacles around they had mo um, models of this or copies of this um, Ark of the Covenant with them. But inside this covenant was the golden jar containing the manna. Remember the manna in the desert? God had provided for them. Again symbolizing God providing for his people. Inside was Aaron's staff. Remember what that was? Aaron's staff was the sign when it started budding, um, when a normal walking stick started budding and making leaves, it was 
the sign to the people that God had chosen Aaron to be his spokesperson with Moses. And then the stone tablets, the law that God had given on, the, on Mount Sinai, those were inside this Ark of the Covenant as well. And now you need to see the picture on top of this, uh, on the cover of this ark, we have two cherubim, two angels. Cherubim are the angels who worship around the Lord in heaven. But here's two figures of two cherubim on this altar cover and, oh, sorry, on the, on the ark of the covenant cover. And their wings are stretched out towards each other and they're looking at each other. And there's a space underneath the wings, directly below their wings, between the two angels, that is called the place of atonement. And it is in that place, says the Lord specifically, Exodus 25, verse 22, in that very little space that the Almighty God of the universe would meet with His people and would speak from. A very specific place. A holy God meeting with people. Well, what does the writer do? The writer of the Hebrews, he contrasts these two systems now. And the two key words we need to know about these two systems are this, limitations and repetitive. Those are our two key words. Repetitive duties, the priests had to go in day by day, sacrifice animals, go through the whole rigmarole that we read through every day, and then they had to come and perform their duties here in the tabernacle. And then there were limitations, there was Daily limitation on what could happen inside that tabernacle. And then limited access of the high priest only once a year going into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice for the people. And before he went in there, he first had to offer a blood sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, for their known and their unknown sins. What was the point of all this? The point of all this is that the Old Testament system of worship excluded people from the direct presence of God and appointed high priests and, um, and priests, fellow human beings like these people, to be their intercessors. Direct access to God was not there. These people only had indirect access to God. But it didn't stay that way, and we're going to look at that next week. You're going to have to wait for that one now. Under the new covenant, God brought about a superior way of worshipping God, one which had direct access to God, and that access was created through God Himself. God created access through God. And so the ineffective was pointing to the effective. The lesser was pointing to the greater. You'd bring offerings and gifts and sacrifices, but they couldn't cleanse your sin right there and then. Your consciences were still seared by sin, and these objects were symbolizing a much better way, which would happen. It was pointing forward. And so the Old Testament system did not bring real-time, actual forgiveness of sin, but pointed to forgiveness which would happen. When Christ would come, an actual real-time forgiveness would be put into place. How did that happen? When Christ came and He spilt His blood and died on the cross. A far better system brought about by God in His great plan of salvation. Verse 10 says, when Christ came, it was a time of reformation. 
Now, that little word reformation is important. Go and look at it. Verse 10. The word reformation means to restore what is out of line. When Christ came, he, all things were set straight as they would be in him. So that's basically the lesson of chapter 9, verse 1 to 10. That's it. I'm not going any further with that because the rest is to come next week. But what do we do with this? I want to draw four, les four lessons from this. The first one is this. Yes, the answer is always Jesus. Always is. It's Jesus. We'll get to that next week. Second point. God desires people to approach him. Doesn't sound like it, does it? But he's a holy God. And he desires people to approach him. From the time of Adam. Think of Adam. Adam walked with the Lord. And when he sinned, he no longer walked with the Lord. He hid. But God still wanted that interaction with him. God wants to be approached by people. Abraham, think of those times that God met with him when he saw those theophanies, those people who appeared, but it was God appearing to him. And God would speak to Abraham. Moses, think of the conversations Moses had. He even negotiated with the Lord. God wanted people to approach him. Think of the people of Israel. God wanted them to come into his presence. And so he made a way for people to worship him. Here's the truth of that. God does not want people to pass him by. He wants people to enter in. And so that's the message today, this morning as well. God does not want you to pass him by, to turn your back on him. He wants you to enter in to relationship with him. The God of the universe says, come, I want to have a relationship with you. A relationship which is a saving relationship. Otherwise, it changes to a relationship of a judge towards you. Come, he says. Third lesson this morning is this. God cares about how we worship him. God is not your big G. I've heard, I heard that again this week in Christian lyrics. People worshiping the big G. He's not the old man in the sky. We can't just casually approach God without remembering who we are and who He is. That we are mere sinful mortals, then that He is almighty and a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. We need perspective. Because you and I, as human beings, we so quickly become the center of our own little universes and we so quickly become the main point of focus. We become the main point of focus. God is holy. And He has made a way for us to come to Him. We don't just worship Him any old way. We come before Him His way. We come before Him with reverent awe. And then the last point this morning is this. In verse 1, we read about earthly worship. The word is used, 9 verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now this earthly place of worship is an interesting word. It's the word cosmicon, which we get our word cosmos from, which means that which surrounds us. And so this earthly worship is tied to this world. That's what this, that specific word, verse was talking about. You see, mankind was yoked to earthly worship with its symbols, 
blood sacrifices, limited access to God, until God changed everything. God established a heavenly place of worship through the sacrifice of His only Son. The problem is this. You and I often resort to earthly worship. How? How can you say we use earthly worship, Calvin? We often resort to earthly worship when we depend on religious acts or forms of worship for our own holiness. What do I mean by that? I pray. I fast. I give tithes to the church. I look after the poor. I attend church services. Is it noted? And I even go to Bible studies. It's all stuff I do, right? And they're good things. Unless you depend on them for holiness. There's the point. You see, these are all good things we do, but if you think you're okay by doing those things, then you suffer from a very serious syndrome. It's called, I've done it syndrome. And it's not relying on God. We rely on forms of worship. Come on, people, we all do it. We don't, we unthinkingly go through these things. We are not relying on God for holiness. We rely on us doing things. And we think, I've done it, so I'm okay for today. The Lord reminds us through this passage that if we do that, we are falling back into an Old Testament form of worship. You see, we need to be coming through the one who gives us access to the Father, which we'll hear about next week. He's the one who actually forgives sins. He's the one who turns my prayers into acceptable incense before the Father. He's the one who pleads my case before the throne. Without a living daily relationship with Jesus Christ himself, I've fallen back to forms of worship. I've fallen back to symbols of hope. And then I'm where the Old Testament believers were. Because these things in themselves can't save me. These things in themselves can't forgive my many and repeated sins. Only Christ forgives. Only Christ brings near. Only Christ brings me before the Father. And so the only effective barrier to your and my access to God today is an inward one. And that is my non-relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus has opened the way for us. And so why do we depend on tied to this world forms of worship when God has heavenly worship available to you and I? Keep your relationship with Jesus Christ fresh every single day. Don't fall back to prayers and all those things because all that's going to happen is you're going to think I've done my bit for today and so I can get on with life. Real worship of God. Real access to Him. You see... And listen to this last closing sentence. Through Jesus, we can worship in the heavens while our feet still walk the earth below. I love that. While I'm still in my clogs and I haven't popped them, I can worship in the heavens, but only through Jesus Christ. Don't fall back on the secondary. There is no hope there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this 
short, I guess, little history lesson on what comes before. But also the warnings that we are not to fall back to symbolisms. We are not to fall back to those things which can't save directly. We are not to fall back to forms of worship. Our hope is to be only in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see that you alone are the one who stands among the lampstands. You are the one who is holy God. You are the one who shines light out of your own being. You are the one who is the core of our life and wisdom. You are the one we are to worship. And Lord, as we pray, as we fast, as we tithe, as we look after the poor, as we attend church, as we are with other believers, as we worship you, may it be worshipping through you, Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the honour of our Father, we pray. Help us in our weakness. Amen.